0: This is the Notable Speeches podcast. Thanks for listening. Today, an address by a medical doctor who's become familiar to many of us in recent weeks, Dr. Anthony Fauci, a lead member of the White House Coronavirus Task Force. Since 1984, Dr. Fauci has served as the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, the NIAID, part of the federal government's National Institutes of Health. In that role, he has advised six U.S. presidents on domestic and international health policy matters. In this address, presented just before Donald Trump took office in 2017, Tony Fauci recounts some of his experience dealing with epidemics and pandemics over the past more than three decades. And he explains why, despite significant advances by scientists and researchers in battling infectious diseases, Government leaders must remain vigilant about the recurrence of known diseases and the emergence of new ones. Dr. Fauci's remarks came as part of an event hosted by the Center for Global Health Science and Security at Georgetown University Medical Center in Washington, D.C., and co-sponsored by the Harvard Global Health Institute.
1: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Given, as you heard from the introduction, that I have been around for a while and have had the opportunity and and the privilege and the pleasure of serving in five administrations, I thought I would bring that perspective to the topic today is the issue of pandemic preparedness. And if there's one message that I want to leave with you today based on my experience, and you'll see that in a moment, is that there is no question that there will be a challenge to the coming administration in the arena of infectious diseases, both chronic infectious diseases in the sense of already ongoing disease, and we have certainly a large burden of that, but also there will be a surprise outbreak, and I hope by the end of my relatively short presentation you will understand why history, the history of the last 32 years that I've been the director of NIAID will tell the next administration that there's no doubt in anyone's mind that they will be faced with the challenges that their predecessors were faced with. So for those who think that infectious diseases is gone, there's so many people who've made foolhardy statements not knowing at the time that they made them. I usually show a quote from an old surgeon general or an old uh, pundit in infectious disease. So I thought I'd pull this one out from Sir McFarlane Burnett, who was actually a, Uh, Nobel Prize winning immunologist uh, who made the statement, as many did, to write about infectious diseases is almost to write of something that has passed into history. The most likely forecast about the future of infectious diseases is that it will be very dull, Uh, which is really kind of interesting coming from a semi-genius like McFarland Burnett. And I think what he did in the mistake that so many people have made is something that several of our panelists have already referred to. And that is a failure to look beyond our own borders in the issue of the globality of health issues. Not only things that are there that will come here, but surprises that we have. So when I think about infectious diseases, I break it down into a few buckets the established infectious diseases that we know, and when I say I know, we mean that you could reasonably predict today what the disease burden of morbidity and mortality is going to be next year. But there are also other issues that we're talking about now, are diseases that are brand new, that we've never seen them before, or much more common, diseases that re-emerge. So let's take a very quick look at established infectious disease and show you what I mean. So there are diseases and disease burden, and these are projected every year, and they're almost always right. For example, lower respiratory infections, and these are deaths. There's gonna be over 2.5 million deaths. There are about 1.6 to 1.8 million deaths of tuberculosis. Hepatitis B and hepatitis C, diarrheal diseases. So let's take a look at the burden and then we'll quickly go on to the emerging. If you look at the total of 56 million deaths worldwide each year, about 15% of them are infectious diseases. That used to be 27% when I first started giving this lecture. And what that tells us is some of the advances we've made in vaccinations and antibiotics and what have you. But if you look regionally, it is still the number one cause of DALYs, which is disability-adjusted life years, which is death plus disability in the developing world in individuals from birth to 49 years old. So that's established infectious diseases. Now we're talking about what an administration might face in regard to emerging diseases, and I'm gonna just put them together into newly and re-emerging diseases, and I'll get in a second to what I mean. So from my own personal experience is why I can say with some confidence that history tells us that we will definitely get surprised in the next few years. So it all started for me when I became director of NIAID, and that was in 1984. And over the years from then, I've had the opportunity to serve five and advise five presidents. Then I'm going to go into the things that I had to advise them about. Now, there are two aspects about the number I'm gonna tell you. uh, And that is that we went back with my ledge office at the NIH and I've testified, and this is not briefings, these are official testifying before the Congress, either the Senate or the House, since I became director approximately 250 times. And every single one of those was related one way or another, to an emerging infectious disease. So for me, it started off with Ronald Reagan. And that was the outbreak of HIV AIDS, which we first became aware of in 1981 with the now very famous two MMWRs, morbidity and mortality weekly reports from the CDC. First of five gay men, and then a month later of 26 gay men, first in LA, and then in LA, New York, and San Francisco. At the time, we thought this was an American gay disease. We did not know that as we were talking about these two MMWRs, there were likely hundreds of thousands of people in sub-Saharan Africa who were already infected, but nobody noticed it. This was something that actually changed my career, and I talk about it often, because as an infectious disease immunologist at the time... I said to myself, this is going to be really, really bad. And I try to get people interested in it, and very few people did, with some exceptions. The CDC certainly was. So what I did is I tried to give, um, I, I, I refer to it as my apologia Vita sua. I could say that in Georgetown, because you all take Latin, right? OK. Um, which is really an, ex- uh, an explanation for what you're doing with your life. So I wrote an article and sent it into the New England Journal of Medicine. They rejected it because they said it was too alarmist. So then I sent it to the Annals of Internal Medicine. I wrote it in 1981 in December, and it got published in June of 1982. And I said, because we don't know the cause of this syndrome, any assumption that it's going to remain restricted to a particular segment of our society is an assumption that is truly without scientific basis. When I said this, there were about 125 reported cases of HIV to the CDC. And we didn't even know it was HIV then. We were calling it GRID. Fast forward, and now we have about 80 million cases, about 35 to 40 million deaths, 36 million people living with HIV, 1.1 million deaths a year, 2.1 million new infections. During the first administration that I dealt with, there was not the proper attention that was paid to it because of a number of reasons, one of which nobody perceived that it was going to be particularly important. But it was when George H.W. Bush was vice president, running for president, he came to the NIH and had the opportunity to show him around and really brief him very, very intensively about this new emerging outbreak that people were now starting to pay attention to. So George H.W. Bush really did get it. And the budget for the NIH comparably went up because it was a scientific endeavor, the investment, ultimately in billions of dollars, that led to the drugs that we have now that have completely turned around the cost of an HIV-infected individual, such that the median survival now is an additional 50-plus years, which is one of the most extraordinary scientific advances that has been made in response to a new outbreak. And what are the lessons that we learned from HIV? One, you have to commit substantial financial and human resources. These things don't get addressed spontaneously by themselves. You have to enlist the best and the brightest investigators in both basic and clinical research. You have to involve the community, be it the gay community in the United States or the community in Africa and West Africa when we dealt with Ebola or the people in South America when we're dealing with Zika. You have to have cross sector collaboration. You can't do it alone. The CDC can't do it alone, the NIH can't do it alone, you do it with all of us, with industry, with global organizations, with philanthropy and NGOs, and you've got to get the leaders and the policymakers involved. Those are the principles we learned and we applied them. So that was George H.W. Bush. Then things started to heat up a bit when we got to President Clinton, because he had a deal with HIV, it wasn't going away. But now we had some other things. West Nile, H5N1, antibiotic resistance. We go back to the same paradigm of the things you need to do. You need to do basic research, the CDC does public health, the WHO does what they do, and you wind up with countermeasures. And let me take a look with you at some of the things we had to deal with and some of the briefings of those 200-plus briefings that we had to do. One was West Nile. West Nile is re-emerging. It isn't new. It was in Africa and the Middle East, likely for hundreds of years. Then either a mosquito, a bird, or a person got on a plane in Israel and landed at Kennedy Airport and then... Boom, we now have West Nile, which is endemic in the United States. So we really addressed it, as we've done in so many other things. Then came George W. Bush. Again, HIV-AIDS was still prominent. But he had to deal with something that was really brand new here. Anthrax, the beginning of H5N1, and SARS. Now, when you talk about presidents worrying that when they get into office, there's going to be something they have to deal with, some health issue that's going to be very disconcerting. Well, it was a double whammy for George W. Bush, because not only did we have the terrible events of 9-11, but juxtaposed in the fall, in October, right after the 9-11 issues, we had the anthrax attacks. And then, all of a sudden, a new outbreak that a president and the departments had to deal with was bioterrorism. The country took this very seriously. There were strategic plans for the Category A agents, namely agents that we knew had been stockpiled by the Soviet Union before the fall of the Iron Curtain. Those were smallpox, anthrax, botulism. So I had the opportunity of dealing very closely with President George W. Bush and his staff in dealing with how we're going to address bioterrorism and with regard to hiv in his presidency as we all know the president did something that is historic he established pepfar in his uh state of the union address in january of 2003 and announced a program which initially was $15 billion to prevent 7 million HIV infections, treat 2 million HIV-infected individuals, and care for 10 million, which turns out now unequivocally to be the most important global health endeavor that has ever been established in history with regard to any single disease. Now, getting back to bird flu, H5N1. It emerged in four Asian countries And the administration took this very seriously. They invested over $7 billion to prepare us for bird flu. So just the way you had the bioterror strategic plan, all of a sudden, we had a pandemic influenza strategic plan, which is actually in effect right now. We still work through that plan. The CDC, the FDA, the NIH, we all use that plan. And again, getting back to the things that we did with the diagnostics, the therapeutics, we started to develop a vaccine. And we preemptively made a vaccine for H5N1, and we put it in the Strategic National Stockpile, the same way as we have one for H7N9. We haven't had to use it yet. But the idea of having something ready to go originated way back during the H5N1 days. But we really decided we needed to do better with our technology. So we advanced from egg-based, to cell-based, to finely recombinant DNA technologies. And we're continuing to develop better vaccine platforms. So if that wasn't enough, then SARS came along. Now the thing about SARS, SARS really scared us because it came on and it came on very fulminantly. It started off in China, and it was someone who went to a hotel in Hong Kong. 19 people in that hotel got on planes and went to different parts of the world. And then we had the SARS outbreak, 8,000 cases, almost 800 deaths. Not only was it a public health issue, it was an economic issue. It really put everything to a halt economically, including in Canada, because Canada had a big problem. So what did we do? Right then again, we jumped on with new technologies, because now we have rapid sequencing. You don't have to grow the virus. You can rapidly sequence it, and we wound up developing a SARS Vaccine that we again never had to use. And the reason we didn't have to use it, because the public health measures completely put the lid on it. So here's an example of public health measures that are antiquated, if you want to call it that, working perfectly in stopping an outbreak. So then we get to the present time. A lot of headaches for this administration with regard to outbreaks. I mean, they had more than their share. What happened in 2009 as soon as he walked in the office? The H1N1 2009 pandemic flu. That's the kind of thing that is very intimidating as well as disruptive to an administration. And then we had the other things, which we'll get to, MERS, chikungunya, Ebola, Zika, AMR, back again to this. The threat of bird flu isn't just H5N1, H7N9. We're starting to see things like H5N8. Then we wind up getting Ebola. Ebola, which had 24 outbreaks in sub-Saharan Africa, anywhere from two people to 200 people, then came away in a new circumstance, which I referred to as the perfect storm. Three countries geographically overlapping each other, very poor, disorganized, no health care system, crowded, and being very, very skeptical of authority. Made it extremely difficult. But after 28,000 cases and 11,000 deaths, We finally got our arms around the good public health measures, as well as the research, again, that we mentioned. We did a program in Liberia. The CDC did a program in Sierra Leone. The WHO did one in Guinea. And we wound up, after all was said and done, with having a vaccine, having a drug that looks promising, but also understanding a lot about the disease. Now, Zika. We all know about Zika. This is not new. This is yet again another arbovirus. But again, for epidemiology, should we have seen it coming? We know it was discovered in 47, first cases in 52. In 2013, an outbreak in French Polynesia. And then it got to, just like with Ebola in West Africa, what I call the perfect storm. A completely immunologically naive country, Brazil. Again, we put into full-blown... The same pattern the basic clinical research developing countermeasures so what are the two approaches to end up this discussion there are two approaches you do when you come to a situation with regard to vaccines and diagnostics you preemptively develop pathogen specific countermeasures there is some merit and I put in parenthesis some if we made a list Ebola wouldn't have been on our list, and Zika wouldn't have been on our list. So a pre-developed list has a place, but it's not the total answer. One of the things you do need to do is develop universal platforms, the way we are with vaccines, the way we're doing with diagnostics. So when you get a new microbe, you get the sequence, you insert the gene into whatever the platform is, VSV, DNA, mRNA, whatever it is, it is much, much quicker than having to worry about going from scratch in trying to grow a microbe. What about the lessons learned? I've already said it about HIV, they're about the same. Global surveillance, transparency and communication, infrastructure, capacity building, coordination and collaboration, the platform technology that I mentioned, and I am very much in favor of what everyone has said here today Namely, we do need a public health emergency fund. Because what we had to go through for Zika, I mean, it was very, very painful when the president asked for the $1.9 billion in February, and we didn't get it until September. That was a very painful process. Examples to develop flexible vaccine capacity, there are a lot of things going on out there. The Global Fund for Vaccine Development, the Coalition of Epidemic Preparedness Innovation, CEPI, that you may have heard of. GSK has built a facility to be able to hit the ground running, and then we have barter. The administration that is going to come in in the next few days. Will there be a resurgence of Zika? What about influenza? Are we going to get a new pandemic? And the third bullet is probably the most important. What about things that we're not even thinking about? But what is for sure, no matter what, history has told us definitively that it is a perpetual challenge. It is not gonna go away. So the thing we're extraordinarily confident about is that we are gonna see this in the next few years. Thank you.
0: From January 2017, Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of NIAID, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. In 2005, Dr. Fauci was awarded the National Medal of Science and in 2008, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, one of the highest awards that can be bestowed on a civilian. Please subscribe to the Notable Speeches podcast if you haven't done so yet. Search for Notable Speeches in the podcast app of your choice. And please rate us if the podcast app you use has a way for you to do so. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at Notable Speeches. To offer a comment or suggestion, send an email to feedback at NotableSpeeches.com. I'm Joseph Slife. Thanks for listening.